The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of homegrown, on-demand audio to help you look to God daily. You can listen to Faith and Fostering with Christians chatting about foster care in an Australian context. Plus, be encouraged by Pastor Terry Nightingale's four-minute devotions with new episodes added each week in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. As we do on a Monday, always like to check in with the Australian Christian Lobby on this week's political agenda. Martin Isles, the Managing Director of the Australian Christian Lobby, back with us. Hello, Martin. Welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Good morning. Good to be with you. Oh, Martin, it's been a huge weekend. Uh, You travelled north on the weekend to Queensland. You were a participant in the Church and State Summit. Uh, What was your overall impression? Well, I was glad that it was in Queensland for a start because uh, I am a Queenslander, so any excuse to come back. (laughs) But uh, look, I thought the summit was excellent. Um, You know, congratulations to Dave Pellow who put that on. Uh, Good attendance there uh, across a two-day period and uh, look, a lot of good speakers, including uh, federal senators and federal politicians um, and Miranda Devine, the journalist, and people from different groups, and uh, yours truly, myself, I spoke there. It was good. And, you know, I think, Neil, the takeaways that uh, came out of it time and again, apart from the excellent information that was given in terms of abortion and the various uh, social policy issues that we're talking about, and also in terms of, uh, you know, how to be involved and things like that, the takeaway point for me was the the urgent need for Christians to engage. Uh, The reality that Christians are here, there's enough of us, more than enough of us to make a huge difference in our nation, in the political sphere, if we only engage as actively and as vigorously as many others in the community do. Uh, We're here, we just need to be heard. And I thought the conference was a great opportunity to uh, give people opportunities uh, to uh, to act, give them tips uh, and give them avenues through which they can make a difference. That was the takeaway for me. Let me give you a takeaway from me here and get your thoughts on this because while I wasn't able to be at the whole summit, I was there on Friday night and uh, did get to meet a number of the speakers there. I can tell you that I was around one of the last to leave, uh, standing around with the speakers, and I've got to be able to say the camaraderie between the speakers who were there at the summit was very important Mm. because sometimes... I get the impression that there are people like yourself, Martin Niles, and so many others, and uh, people will know those guests on 2020. Uh, they can often feel like they're a little isolated, doing their own thing, uh, shouting into the wilderness sometimes, but when you come together at a summit like that, everybody's there on the platform, and they recognise that there is strength in the voice uh, for Christians when it comes to uh, this concept of church and state. What were your thoughts about the camaraderie of, of particularly those leaders who had opportunity to speak? Well, it's, a, it's an astute observation, actually. I, I have to say that's true. I mean, I arrived, uh, I was the first speaker on Friday uh, during the day, and I arrived and uh, I said, oh, look, go down, the, go down the corridor there. There's a green room at the end where, you know, some speakers are gathering to, to speak. And I walked in the door and the whole place was just 
full of all of these. We call them the deplorable sort of <laughs> <laughs> people who are who are speakers and activists, uh, you know, um, and, and, and real comrades in arms, I suppose, in terms of um, all really wanting to do right and make an impact for good in the political sphere and the academic spheres and things like that. Everyone was having a good laugh and having a good talk, and, you know, it was wonderful. And, and you're quite right. The camaraderie was very, very strong. Uh, and it was a good opportunity to talk to them and, you know, realise you're not the only crazy one and uh, there are others out there who are fighting the good fight. So it's, it's really refreshing. And I think that that same sense very often comes out at events like this for those who attend. You know, ACL, we hold events around the place and people love coming together and sitting in a room with, you know, hundreds of others who are of like mind uh, and have the same concerns. It's very strengthening and really lifts your arms up and, uh, and, and gives you a fresh energy for the fight. The momentum is growing very strong and a timely year for that to happen with a federal election due. Let me take you to another point. Of course, the latest news poll result, which is renowned to be a reliable poll, uh, it's not uh, it's not uh, shown any change to its previous uh, numbers, even though there was another poll, the Ipsos poll just recently, that did show that there was some changes towards uh, the coalition. But what were your thoughts about uh, the poll in the news poll remaining unchanged? Well, uh, we did talk about the Ipsos poll uh, last week, which did seem to show uh, a very well remarkable uh, increase in fortunes for the coalition. Scott Morrison's government went to, I think it was 49 to 51, two-party preferred, 51 to Labor, but that really closed what's been a yawning gap for a very long time to make it you know, within striking distance. And there's a lot of excitement about that. I was up in the parliament a bit, and I have to say there was a lot of excitement amongst MPs and senators. Um, but I think uh, I said at the time, and a few people said at the time, look, let's just hang on and wait for wait a bit. Polls sometimes do present outliers so we should probably wait for some more data because it seemed implausible to me that in an in an environment where people simply are not listening to politicians they're not watching politics they're fed up with politics that they would have such a turnaround in such a short period of time i thought people aren't listening that much and it's interesting to me that news pollers come in and it's um it's 47 53 two-party preferred which is closer to where it used to be. Um, uh, it's it's not it's not a complete cataclysm for Scott Morrison, uh, but it's not good. It's, he's facing a serious uphill battle here, uh, and to come back from a primary vote in sort of at 37%, uh, which is what it is, uh, is going to be exceedingly difficult. I'd say the budget is their last hope. But their problem is people just ain't listening. People have got the baseball bat out of the cupboard and they're waiting to swing it, and they're not listening. So, uh, look, uphill battle for Scott Morrison, and I think we should all sort of um, bear that in mind as we move into the election season. Uh, uphill battle, as you say, uh, from some of the thoughts I've been exposed to, uh, with the sort of uh, numbers as they are, 47-53, that could mean as many as 20 seats for the coalition lost. Uh, that would be a really uh, dramatic uh, landslide victory, wouldn't it, for Labor in the coming election if those numbers hold true? Well, exactly. It would be, uh, well, they, they sometimes call it a bloodbath. Uh, it would be a serious uh, a swing. And one thing that's worth contemplating under such conditions is, let's say that Labor win the election uh, and you're left with uh, coalition having been seriously damaged. If they've lost so many seats, you have to ask the question, well, who will survive? Uh, will there be any leadership material left uh, in the small group 
of MPs and senators uh, that survive? Will there be uh, any solid Christians? So the, the fact is, actually, if you look at Christian MPs and, uh, in, in the parliament, most of them are in vulnerable seats. Uh, so a huge swing means that we lose a lot of good people uh, and we're left with some who are, you know, uh, from a Christian point of view, not necessarily so good. So um, that's a challenge looking ahead. I, I trust that the gap closes uh, near polling day, as, as does tend to happen, uh, and we don't get quite as much carnage as that. I'm, I'm not optimistic about a coalition win, uh, but if anyone can do it, Scott Morrison probably can. Okay, let's move on. There was a very sad story over the weekend. Victorian Troy Thornton has died in a Swiss, Swiss euthanasia clinic. Uh, lethal injection late on Friday. Uh, what's your view of what's happened there, Martin? Well, you know, we're going to see more and more of this. It's the second time we've had an Australian go to, youth, uh, go to uh, Switzerland or a highly publicised uh, trip to go to Switzerland uh, and get euthanasia. And the activists will say, well, isn't it tragic that they had to go all the way to Switzerland to get euthanasia and they couldn't have it here? Oh, look, I think it's terribly tragic that they thought that euthanasia was the right option and that they died. Uh, that's actually the tragedy. Um, look, we're going to see more and more of this, and it can be challenging, I think, to people who are watching to hear a sob story of one person or a tragic story of one person, which it is tragic, uh, and, and not be persuaded that, oh, well... Perhaps we should do euthanasia here. But there's more to it than that. I think we always have to be clear about what's actually being asked for here when activists ask for euthanasia. What they're saying is that killing should be an actual legitimate form of health care, that people should be able to die, uh, and that should be called medicine. Now, that fundamentally reverses uh, millennia of medical practice. Uh, The Hippocratic Oath has always said, do no harm. And that means you don't kill people. It's not the same as treating someone with a drug. uh, And in the name of medical treatment, there's a principle of double effect where that drug might have a a side effect that hastens a person's death. That's not the same because the the intention, the motive is always health care, is always to look after somebody. It's not to kill them. That's a very different idea when you come along and you say, right, we're going to kill this person. Because you can think of it this way. If the person survived the treatment unexpectedly, would you kill them anyway? If the answer is yes, then that's because it's euthanasia. You intended to kill them. If, the, if you would actually celebrate, say, oh, my goodness, they lived uh, against the odds uh, and we, you know, they're alive and that's fantastic, of course that wasn't euthanasia. Uh, so euthanasia is very different. Uh, it's a new thing that we haven't had in the medical system in Australia before. It says that it's legitimate to kill someone. Now, they always bring euthanasia in and say, oh, well, there's all these limits. You know, you've got to be 18 years old. Uh, you need to uh, be expected not to live for more than six months um, and things like this. You need to have a, a terminal illness. Uh, it needs to be a physical illness. You don't qualify if you have psychological illness. But the activists always push those boundaries. Once you get rid of that bedrock principle of sanctity of life and say, look, we can never kill, it's very hard to argue that somebody who has a prognosis of eight months should not qualify, but someone with a prognosis of six months should qualify. It's very hard to argue um, that somebody who's 17 and a half should not qualify, but someone who's 18 should qualify. And you see the activists push the boundaries, push the boundaries, push the boundaries until you have the situation where in places like Belgium, you've got children as young as 11 and 9 getting euthanasia because they are disabled, not because they're terminally ill, 
because they're disabled children. You have people getting euthanasia because they're tired of life, and that's actually the reason nominated. You have dementia patients getting euthanasia. You have euthanasia deaths increasing to a point where they now make up nearly 4% of all deaths in the Netherlands uh, every year. You have this, hor- this horrific slippery slope that opens up before us. And people say, oh, well, that won't happen in Australia. Well, it definitely will because we mentioned the first case of somebody going to Switzerland to die. That was Professor David Goodall, the West Australian scientist who went over there. Now, the only problem with Dr. David Goodall was that he was old. He was 104. And the activists conveniently don't talk about the fact that they're celebrating the death of a man. He had no medical condition. He had no uh, uh, short-term prognosis. He was just old, and they killed him, and that was a good thing. And it's interesting in this case that we're talking about right now, this Victorian man, Troy Thornton, he wouldn't have qualified for euthanasia under the incoming Victorian legislation uh, because his illness was not, didn't have a six-month prognosis. Uh, he was expected to live much longer than that. And so they're already chipping away at the edges, saying, no, no, suicide on demand is the end goal, and they're already trying to move the boundary post. So we need to know what's actually happening here. Uh, it's a very dark agenda. Uh, it's a very deadly agenda, quite literally. Um, and euthanasia is the wrong call. People should get good palliative care, good end-of-life help. And actually, that can do a great deal to improve somebody's uh, life uh, in the last days. We've got tremendous technology around palliative care these days, uh, which does do Uh, all that's necessary to make someone comfortable. As you say, a dark agenda, and as Christians, we recognise we're created in the image and likeness of God. And uh, for those listeners wondering what it is to be a Christian and get your mind around these things, of course, we recognise that human life life has value from uh, the conception right through unto the grave. And, of course, this uh, is by no means over yet, as you say, Martin Isles, because Victoria is set to become the first Australian state to legalise voluntary assisted dying. That takes effect on the 19th of June. Uh, So that's coming this year, and that slippery slope undoubtedly will be evident here in Australia too, and we'll be monitoring that along, and uh, being that Christian voice calling out uh, even while people appear not to be listening. Uh, Martin, uh, there's a number of bits and pieces. We might have to race through some. Uh, The ACT set to remove chaplains from public schools by next year. What's this one all about? Well, this is a shame, isn't it, Neil? I mean, um, yeah, look, there's been uh, lots of activists who don't like the fact that chaplains are in our public schools because chaplains, of course, have a religious affiliation. They don't, there's rules around what they can do. They don't proselytize, they don't evangelize uh, students, but they are there as support. Uh, and overwhelmingly, the surveys and the data and, and, and all of that shows that schools are really thrilled with chaplains. They've had them for years now since the Howard government introduced the scheme uh, and they really go down well. The the students overwhelmingly like them, the school communities overwhelmingly want them. Uh, Groups like Scripture Union that provide the chaplains, uh, they are constantly checking up on this stuff uh, and they're a huge asset to school communities. And look, it's a great thing to have someone there who is a Christian uh, and who can help people, uh, not just uh, in terms of uh, the challenges that they face uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in, in an academic sense or, or, or in a psychological sense, or, but also a spiritual sense as well. They're, they're really good supporters, and I think it's sad that the ACT government has now made a move to say that they're going to ban religious chaplains from schools. So 
they're not going to have people there who are religiously affiliated, uh, but they're going to have people there who are simply sort of secular social workers. Um, and it's just interesting to me, you read the comments from um, uh, Yvette Berry, who is the uh, Deputy Chief Minister in the ACT, and it's all uh, attacking the religious basis, saying, oh, we don't want religion in our schools, we run a secular school system, as if a child's spirituality simply doesn't matter, uh, and it's illegitimate to uh, to have somebody there with, with, a, with a Christian worldview. Um, and uh, it just reminds me that uh, all the data in the world uh, isn't going to stop somebody if they simply don't like religion. Um, we sometimes uh, assume that if we can provide the data that says that chaplains are wanted, that chaplains are helpful and that kids benefit from chaplains, uh, that that will be enough to stop some in the political sphere from moving against them. But it isn't always. Sometimes people just have a problem with religion, have a problem with Christianity. And uh, look, the ACT, that's where I live. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's not a surprise to me. Um, but I think that school communities and parents should continue to raise their voices and let their schools know and let their MPs know that chaplains are valued because I wouldn't be surprised if the pressure ramps up in other states as well. So keep that feedback going. Keep saying how you value your school chaplain to those who will listen. Oh, so important. Uh, one last one quickly, uh, an interesting one, and the tables turn, don't they? Martina Navratilova, the champion tennis player, uh, dropped by an LGBT group called Athlete Alley after comments saying it wouldn't be fair for women to play against trans women. Uh, this is an interesting turn of events, isn't it? Well, it is, uh, you know, and it's funny sometimes, well... You know, the whole trans thing has got so far, but all of a sudden people are starting to see, like Martina Navratilova is starting to see, actually, uh, that, um, that, that there's a point at which it does become madness and unfair. And I actually think fairly anti-women, because you think for a second, a biological man uh, who has taken some drugs and got some surgeries is now competing in a woman's event against biological women. Now, Look, it doesn't take Einstein to realise that there's some major problems with that, especially if it's a sport like wrestling, uh, or you know there are actually some people, some trans women who are you know biological men doing brilliantly in sports like cycling. There was a weightlifter, Hannah Mouncey, at the Commonwealth uh, Games, who was a biological man. Uh, there's actually quite a few. Uh, biological men doing women's competitions now and doing extraordinarily well and of course they are because biological men not only tend to have higher testosterone levels which optimizes their performance uh, but uh, there's more than that you know the international olympic committee committee came along and said okay well, we're going to mandate maximum levels of testosterone in the body uh, for biological men to qualify as trans women uh, in sports. But the research is now showing it's not just the testosterone, it's the fact that they have bigger muscle mass. It's the fact they have larger lungs. It's the fact they've got larger hearts, uh, able to circulate more blood more quickly. It's the fact they've got bigger uh, body frames. Um, now, it's incredible to me they've had to put out all of these studies and research papers to prove the obvious. I mean, you, you and I can hear this and go, well, well sir, of course. Um, there's kind of a madness here. And, and all Martina Navratilova's done is come out and say, uh, hey, this is unfair. And I, I, just, I just, my heart goes out to those women who do have to compete against biological men because it is unfair. And there's been a story, I think, of a, it might have been an MMA fighter in the US who, who broke her skull and got concussion. Uh, because uh, of, of an injury sustained from, you know, someone who's much, much stronger. 
Um, and it's it's not fair. And I see one of the one of the concerns I see coming out of um, out of this whole trans women issue is that real women are starting to suffer the consequences. Um, whether it's the loss of their bathrooms, uh, with men uh, having access to women's bathrooms, a big problem in the US at the moment, uh, or if you listen to the CEO of Women Speak Tasmania, who recently put out a, a statement, you know, she says, look, we actually now, now have biological men in women's prisons. We have biological men in women's uh, domestic violence shelters. Uh, and, you know, in a really sad turn of events, there's been incidents in Tasmania where biological men have assaulted uh, women in domestic violence shelters. So they're in the very place where they're trying to be safe. Uh, and then, of course, they have that issue. Uh, and she goes through a whole range, a slew of examples. Um, and I think that this is turning into a fundamentally anti-women problem. Uh, and if we really want to stand up for women, for the rights of women, for the dignity of women, uh, and also for the hard-fought and won place that women have in sports and so many other things, uh, we should stand against this. Um, I think if somebody is a biological man, then they should compete in men's sports. Well, an interesting connection to this very program, Martin Isles, and uh, you might remember too when Margaret Court uh, was being criticised internationally and the charge being led by Martina Navratilova over comments that Margaret Court had made on this radio program with regards to lesbians in tennis. Do you remember that? Uh, it was such a huge uh, international story that broke and it happened on this program. But interestingly, uh, when we're hearing now Martina Navratilova says it wouldn't be fair for women to play against trans women, the question that Margaret Court was responding to on this very program was about uh, being a elite athlete. Uh, Margaret Court's thoughts on what happens if trans women uh, begin to play women's sport and uh, there's all of those inequalities that eventuate. And so Martina Navratilova, she was the biggest critic of Margaret Court over those comments. And now, interestingly, uh, we'll defend Martina Navratilova because she's making the sorts of comments that say it wouldn't be fair. So a very, very interesting turn of events. Yeah, look, it is interesting. And I, I had exactly that in my mind as well when I, when I saw the news. Uh, it's uh, Martina actually uh, put out a tweet in December uh, just uh, sort of suggesting that she had this view and she was attacked very widely and she, she then said, okay, what I'm going to do is go and research the issue. I'm going to look at the research. I'm going to look at the information. I'm going to be as well informed as I can. I'll come back and tell you what I think. And that's actually what she's just done and everyone was sort of like, oh, she'll shy away. She'll back off. And then she wrote in the Sunday Times uh, and she just said, no, actually, I've done the research and I'm right. And I wonder whether, um, actually, in so many situations, uh, people may have an emotive response uh, and a response that, that uh, you know, our society encourages in, in, in the language of equality and love. And, you know, and so we go along with it. But, uh, you know, having gone away and researched the issue, having gone away and looked at, well, what's actually going on? Uh, I wonder whether that's been part of the journey uh, for many, including perhaps Martina Navratilova, who's gone away and um, found out that there's more to this picture uh, and come back with a very robust piece on it, uh, explaining the situation much more clearly and just how, how mad it is. 
Well, Martin, I always love your insights and always appreciate a bit of an update when it comes around Monday mornings. Love Monday mornings, getting an idea about the political agenda ahead for the week, commentary on those things that have happened over the weekend and uh, those insights that you bring, Martin Isles, absolutely valuable. And thank you so much for taking an opportunity today to update listeners. Let me point people to the website. The Australian Christian Lobby website is acl.org.au. ACL.org.au, that's where you'll find tremendous resources, articles about the issues that are breaking right now and Christian perspectives on those. Martin Niles, thanks for being with us once again today on 2020. Thanks so much, Neil. Have a good week. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.